Hi, Miss Emily. Hello, Miss Stevie. How are you doing, Bestie Emily? I'm doing well, Bestie Stevie. How are you doing? I'm doing sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm good. Tell me your hooray. Oh, yeah, my hooray. Um, this is a hooray. My hooray is that I have a crush which is very, like, it's not going anywhere. It's literally just a crush on somebody that I work with. But that's a hooray for me because I don't think I've had a crush since I was probably 12 years old because I don't, I've never even been in touch with what I like enough to have a crush. That's amazing. Like, on a real person. So that's a hooray for me because the fact that I even feel those feelings at all means that I've done a lot of work. So that's pretty cool. That's very cool. I'm very proud of you. Thanks. What's your hooray? My hooray is that my hooray is that I am going home to surprise my cousin for her twenty first birthday, and it's a wake party, so I'm trying to secure a Dana Scully wig. Everyone's gonna ask you to post pictures, and you're not going to. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> but if she gets one, we'll, we'll let you know if it was good. Yeah, it might it might be horrible. And it might look like, it might look like, you know what I might look like? I might look like, <laughs> I might look like Scully um, when they put Jillian in a, in a wig mm. as Scully, but she was supposed to be like post-college grad Scully. Oh, I know what you're talking about. That's likely how I'll probably end up looking. Either, well, better that than like UFO. Jillian Anderson did a movie called UFO. It was a bad wig. It was a rough wig. You could just use my pink wig and match with your grandma. That'd actually be really cute. That would be very cute. I have a short bob pink wig, and it looks so good on Emily. I don't know. I kind of want to cosplay as Dana Scully, I think. That's, I mean, that's fair. But, like, Dana Scully going to get bottomless brunch with Melissa. Aww. I want, like, someone to write an AU that doesn't even have Mulder in it. It's just Scully and Melissa. I agree, and I would be surprised if that doesn't exist. My other, what's the opposite of a hooray? A boo-ray. A boo-ray, okay. Blu-ray. <laughs> okay, my boo-ray is that I am literally so in love with Pet Porter, who is a fictional character I don't know what to do with myself, and it's so painful. You I'm know, in so much pain. Being, I've heard that being gay is all fun and games until the yearning hits. I did say that tonight. <laughs> is this it's you confronted with the yearning? This is me confronted with the yearning. I mean, I'm constantly yearning for other reasons. <laughs> but this is yearning. This is the pain. You're witnessing it firsthand. This is the yearning would also be a good um, band name. You're all about band names, huh? I don't know. There's a part in L Word. <laughs> um, one of the characters always refers to her girlfriend as my lover, Cindy. Wouldn't that be a good band name? Like, that and one. up next is my lover, Cindy. <laughs> and it's crab. What's a crab full of snakes? <laughs> you know what I mean. If any, if anyone has any advice on how to deal with yearning for. Specifically for a fictional character, even better if it's for Bette Porter herself. Please let me know because this doesn't even happen in real life, really. Like, in real life is very manageable. The yearning? 
Yeah, the yearning in real life is very manageable. Um, but it's like that porter, you know what I mean? I don't know that I've, I've, I don't think I've ever felt yearning. You're so lucky. <laughs> I don't know how you would describe that from desire. What's the difference between yearning and desiring? Have you ever been in love? Um, do you want me to describe it to you? Um, <laughs> and is yearning specific to the gay experience or is it universal? It's not necessarily, it's not necessarily specific, but I think that in, in, in terms of ex- it's exclusive, but I think that it's specific to the gay experience. Mm. Um, I'm sure it has something to do with like, traditionally, obviously, if you are a part of this community, um, you've probably come to that part of yourself later in life. And so Mm. the ability or like the years that you could have lived out how, who you really were, um, are shortened for people in this community because like you come to this part of yourself later so you get it yeah um so i feel like yearning is just like an intense form of desire but it's not desire in terms of like a lust it's it's desire mixed with like regret and nostalgia and planning life together yeah all of it yeah so i feel like desire is like a is like a branch off of yearning if that yeah. makes sense and desire seems like it's usually pretty sexual and i feel yeah. like yearning encompasses a lot of like emotional sexual mental spiritual whatever absolutely that seem right that seems very right at least that's how that's how i see it i don't know well do you want to do a question let's do the question <laughs> All right. So we have a question that says, um, over the last year, I've come to terms with the fact that I'm queer after being unsure for so long. I want to come out to my friends, but because I've only had relationships with men, I feel like they won't take me seriously. I love them, but we don't have much in common and I'm scared it will change our relationship. But I know I don't want to hide part of who I am anymore. Any advice? Thanks so much for creating such a safe space. Lots of love. Kisses. Well, kisses right back. Kisses right back. Um, how cool. You're amazing. Welcome. <laughs> How's um, the yearning? <laughs> yeah. Has the yearning set in yet? Let us know. <laughs> but I mean, when CV, when we both first read this question, we were like, well, they're not really your friends then. Um, yeah. And like, it still kind of stands. I feel like I've been in a lot of friendships where like, it's double the work because it's, I'm not just gauging how to best approach a conversation or how to communicate to the best of my ability, but I'm also trying to anticipate how they are going to react. Mm. And then when they do react in real time, trying to figure out if they're being genuine or not, or if they really think something else or, and it's exhausting and a friendship, any relationship should never should never be based on anything but clarity and communication um yeah. and you should feel absolutely safe to to express especially like it's who you are you know yeah. like it's not like you just bought a new pink shirt and like you're super jazzed about it you know and you're worried that your friends aren't gonna like it yeah. you know it's like it's who you are so you should feel like they're not only gonna tolerate that but they're gonna celebrate it 
Yeah, we were in a scene in the L word. <laughs> oh dear. Spoiler alert if you are before season two of the L word skip. But um whoever Dana's dating in the beginning, Laura, Laura. um <laughs> she says to Dana because she's not out yet, she's like, It just makes me sad to see you hiding some of the best bits of yourself. And so if these people are really your friends, then they should be fucking honored to be to experience some of the best bits. Someone that I follow um, on Instagram was doing like a question thing, and someone said, "I don't know what to do. Should I break up with my boyfriend? I don't like. I don't know what to do." And she was basically like, her answer was, "If you're having to ask, then you already know the answer." Yeah. And I think the same applies here, which is just that like. If you're having anxieties about um, this based on previous behavior from your friends, then you already have your answer, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, as shitty as this sounds, which like I'm sure, I mean, I know I experience obviously like with all of my family pretty much, um, which is just like, I know we've talked about it on the pod before, which is just that like, it feels really shitty to not be able to um, be your fullest self and embody like outwardly all of the parts of you um, around the people that you love and around the people that um, are in your life. But being out is better than keeping friends who are shitty in your life and not being able to be yourself. Like there's truly like maybe coming out and losing friends is better than keeping those shitty friends and staying in the closet and being somebody that you aren't. And I feel like on the other hand, if this isn't actually, if, if your anxieties around telling them actually isn't revealing of your friendship and you're only just anxious about it, then give them the benefit of the doubt. Like if, if they've truly been good friends to you for so long, then trust them to handle this. They will. And if they don't, then they weren't meant to. And then what Emily said. Exactly. Yeah, because that's the thing. Like, it sounds like the question, like, it sounds like it's a question that was asked already knowing the answer. It's like that scene from Fleabag when um, she goes to her therapist and her therapist is like, you already know what you're going to do, which is true. Like, just trust your gut, trust your gut instinct. Ultimately, it's kind of a catch-22 because... You want to come out, but you don't want them to have a horrible reaction um, or treat you differently, which is even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but you obviously want to be who you are. So that's really, really hard. So I guess it all just depends on how, um, I mean, you know them obviously better than we do. So I feel like it all depends on what kind of friends they are and how they've treated you in the past and how they've made you feel in the past and i think that gauging that um that record and that history of behavior is going to be your best bet in making a decision i agree and you know and you know you know how they've made you feel don't do not second guess yourself trust your gut if there's any inkling of like this was kind of uncomfortable or this didn't feel great then it didn't yep don't minimize that. And something that struck me about this question was the saying, let me pull it up. We don't have a lot of in common. Yeah. How do you know that? Because <laughs> I know. 
I was, yeah, it's that when um, the person said, I love them, but we don't have much in common and I'm scared it will change our relationship. Um, which is interesting to me because I feel like how much you have in common is the maybe least important thing of having a good friendship. Mm. Because I feel like on the surface, I mean, depending on what level you talk about, like, because on a surface level, you and I don't have much in common, Sans, this sh- interest in this show. It's yeah. like you're in social justice, I'm an actor. Um, we're from completely different places. We have really different backgrounds and yet you're like my best friend. Yeah. I think that's because there's something, um, there's some kind of a deeper connection that happens in friendships that, um, surpasses surface level, level commonalities. And just because they don't have the same interests or identities as you doesn't mean that they, um, are incapable of supporting and loving you and being there for you no matter what. Exactly. And then, you know, if you are still unsure, tell them and then you can make and then the ball is completely hello. The ball is completely in your court and you get to decide where you where you move forward. You get to decide if you've grown and evolved to a point where this environment doesn't serve you anymore and these people don't serve you anymore or if they or if you're confident that they will treat you the same and nothing will change and maybe even just communicate that as well yeah when in doubt just be honest about exactly how you're feeling be like hey yeah. i want to talk to you about this thing but i've been nervous and hesitant to do so because of x y and z i feel like anxiety stems in in the not knowing at least for me so like anxiety feels like well what if this happens well what if that happens well i don't know so i feel so uncomfortable and by being honest about exactly how you're feeling you're going to eliminate 90% of those anxieties because then you're going to know so much more because you're just being you're, there's no nothing being held back there's no what ifs some what of I our mean? Wor- some of our worst fears lie in anticipation yeah um and of course this isn't to say like go tell everybody go be out to be only if you're safe but it seems like if you're the, these are your friends you seem like you are safe with them that's not the question uh yeah i completely agree i'm like very um pro putting out, throwing out anxieties on the table where they exist um, instead of, like, trying to remain cool. I'm so anti, like, keeping cool because, like, well, I think it's easier to, I mean, it's just, like, a masking, right? It's, like, it's just easier to pretend, like, something doesn't bother you or pretend, like, you're not getting flustered um, as a, instead of just being, like, oh, my God, I've, like, even I feel like in in dating situations, I like to do it. <laughs> to just lean into being flustered? Yeah. I mean, that makes sense because it's like, I feel like... Or being anxious or whatever it is, whatever feeling it is. I feel like we as people, like just humans in general, waste so much time um, using energy to mask how they're actually feeling. And like, for what reason? It's not going to stop you from feeling the way that you're really feeling. So why not just feel it? That's such a good... Oh my God yeah like so much of my day is trying to hide things that i'm really feeling and it's like for what reason it doesn't make it go away exactly and then from there on out too like it would apply in in this question as well which is just like you know how to proceed then you know the environment once you're once you proceed i think that like if you mask all of those things if you're masking this anxiety um trying to gauge how they're going to react or if they're going to treat you differently. It just builds and builds and builds. And then even after, say, you do decide to tell them, 
then you're still trying to gauge whether or not they are changing the way that they're be- they're treating you yeah. or so like everything still lies in a in a space of ambiguity in a space of like chaos and so you might as well just throw it out on the table and just say like I have something to tell you guys but I'm really anxious about it and um I just really would appreciate a verbal confirmation that like you know this thing that I'm about to share with you about myself that I really want to share with people that I love and trust doesn't change our relationship because I really value the, the, um, I really value the interactions and the friendships that we have now. Yeah, exactly. But also I completely understand just needing it to feel right. Yeah. Um, which I, I get. So maybe if it doesn't feel right, wait, wait off a little bit or, or, um you told us and i'm thrilled for you yeah (laughs) nothing's gonna change here no except for now you're cool (laughs) happy pride happy pride oh my god happy pride if you do end up talking to them let us know how it goes or if you don't yeah we'd love to hear if you would love to share all right should we get into the episode let's get into the episode so this is the list um Season three, episode five. That feels right. We open on a very spooky setting. There's smoke. It's nighttime. There's some dewy grass around the road. Mm. This man driving a car pulls up to a dude just hanging out on the side of the road in the middle of the night and says, Mr. Simon, are you ready? My guy, he's standing on the side of the road He's clearly waiting for you. I think it's safe to assume he's ready. Oh my god, was that the executioner? Yes. <gasps> I just put that together. Okay. So did I. I was is like, wait, I don't that remember works? this. I don't know, but if it is, like, that's fucked. Well, I know that I know the the head, like him in like the mask that disguises his identity is a real thing. Yeah. I this wanted whole... to ask about um I don't know if this is the right time, we're two seconds in, but I know this episode is, like, kind of in response to, like, capital punishment being at the forefront of, like, national consciousness in the mid-90s. But I want... What are your thoughts on the death penalty? Because I don't know that I've ever really thought about it critically, which maybe is bad of me, but... Um, Oh, I'm I'm anti-death penalty. First of all, because I don't think that people should get an out that easily. That's very fair. Um... I'm just anti, I mean, I'm just, I'm anti any form of cruel and unusual punishment from the state at a state level, at a federal level, especially with um, the fact that the um, justice system in this country is so fucked up. Um, uh, Black men are likely to be convicted of, or, or sentenced or given a harsher sentencing or given a harsher punishment or um um whatever decision when they commit a crime so i don't like those odds you know what i mean people wrongly marginalized people wrongly accused of crimes crimes there's you know where where marginalized people get the death sentence and there's you know faulty evidence whatever it is like our justice system is just too fucked i think to be um to be uh, killing people and trusting with that much power and murder yeah. yeah i mean that's not to say that we don't have sanctioned murder in our military but it's like right 
you know, I'm also anti-military. So that Well, I mean, works. like, anti-prison as an institution and as a whole. Exactly, but. yeah. That's just why it's so funny when people say that pro-choice equates anti-life. <laughs> That's why pro-life is not the opposite of pro-choice. Like, I'm very pro-life. I'm anti-death penalty. I'm anti-war. I'm pro-Medicare for all. Like, those are the most pro-life positions that you can take. We know pro-life isn't pro-life. It's pro-control. Exactly. The only conversation I've ever had about the death penalty was, like, I remember in, like, the early 2000s, I think we talked about it in class or something, Um, Mm. like, in middle school or elementary school or something. I was talking to my mom about it, and she was, like, no, like, kill those fuckers because she has her own personal experience and so she's like no i want him to die and i'm like i can't blame you for that but i've never thought about it from a non-biased perspective totally from a non like victim of a specific person and it's hard because i remember i watched a ted bundy documentary and um and uh, he was executed there were people outside celebrating when Mm -hmm. he was being executed on the one hand i completely understand wanting that because of how much of a monster he was and how much damage he did yeah um at the same time i definitely don't think that it's my place to make a decision or 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 ascribe a feeling to the victim of whoever is being whoever is being judged or whatever Mm -hmm. no you whoever is like on trial Mm -hmm. um I'm being sentenced. At the same time, it's there's something very sinister about our culture and our society where that encourages people to, or that encouraged people to, like, celebrate sanctioned murder. I, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's so... Well, it feels like energy weird. being put in the wrong place. It's like, yeah, totally. like, be happy that that's... Um, that he's gone he's not hurting people that justice that like some form of justice has been served but like maybe it's more effective to put that energy into breaking the system that created a person and like gave him enough power to commit the acts that he did totally like that seems like the more i think maybe that's why it feels like unsettling because it's it's not actually it's this problem's not solved yeah it's like celebrating the death. It's like celebrating the end of rain as as clouds are rolling in. It's like, well. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I don't, I'm not an expert on that. No, me either. So like, um, please be gentle with us. This is just a chat. We've never claimed to be professionals about anything. Yeah, like it just ultimately just rubs me the wrong way that it's like our justice system is as, um, as broken as it is. And I shouldn't even say broken because it was always intended to work the exact way that it's working. So in that sense, it's fully functioning, but yeah, but our justice system is like fucked for lack of a better word. And, um, that it's like state, it's like state sanctioned or, or federally sanctioned, whatever it is, murder, like, well, and it's, I think it's like the same thing that I literally just said. It's like, okay, like kill them but you're not doing anything to to prevent these things from continuing to happen in this kind of violence of being perpetuated totally but it's like similar vibes to um on an authoritative level to um 
like men when a woman in their life has been assaulted being like i'll kill him like let me at him i gotta get him but like you went you didn't give a fucking shit when any of the other minor stuff was happening totally anyway sorry no but it's a good point because it's like with crimes where you're like well how do you stop people from murdering other people like how do you stop people from stealing from other people it's like the root cause of crime is poverty yeah so it's like that's how you that's how you stop those things from happening or at least uh reduce them Mm -hmm. so yeah so this is the mr simon is the executioner which i also just realized (laughs) i was like am i reading my notes for the right episode (laughs) well i did the same thing when i watched that first scene i was like i have never seen this before and then it kicked in and i was like oh yes i have me too the first i was like i've never seen this beginning car scene before yeah, me either. So, the executioner gets in the car, Mr. Simon. Isn't, he, isn't his name Perry? Yeah. We'll call him pa- yeah, call him okay. Perry. Um, so Perry gets in the car. Then we cut to East Point State Penitentiary, um, which is a maximum security prison in Leon County, Florida. Right off the bat, every inmate that we see is black. Yeah. Um, like, accurate, much, but are you doing I anything was gonna about say, it now? As much as I'd like to think this was a statement on how black communities are over-policed and how black men and women are incarcerated, or black, yeah, black men and women are incarcerated at more than a five times, at more than five times the rate of white people, I'm sure it's just racism. Well, the thing is, is that it's like, there's a lot of police brutality in this too, but it's police brutality presented as, as, oh, this is just how the system is. It's not which even is true. wrong, which is true, but like not disagreeing with that that shouldn't be the way. Well, that it's it like is. justice would have been like something. It, it's also whoa. Ultimately, it's like the exact same thing. It oh just my in god! Like meta because it's like should he've been arrested by Mulder and Scully and thrown in jail for the rest of his life, or should he have died? Which is what happens. So which one is better? Whoa! So from what we can see. In the beginning, a man named me, <laughs> a man named Nietzsche is going to be executed. But for some reason, the other inmates are happy that he's being executed while his partner is telling him she won't ever love another man. That actress put her whole pussy into that two-second scene. She really did. And- I was like, I kind of feel like she's talking to a brick wall. Like, this man is doing nothing, and she is and she was giving fully- so much. Yeah, she's going on this whole long speech about how she'll never love an- another man, and we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> These hoes ain't loyal, you know? Scully knows. When a woman gets lonely. You know, Mulder? <laughs> Sometimes a woman gets lonely. There's so much foreshadowing in this episode. I know. So she's giving her all um, about their ever about their love lasting forever. Yada yada yada. Whatever. Mm-hmm. She mentions something about a call from the governor coming through, presumably to push back his execution date. But the guards take him to be executed, and. I don't really want to get into the details of this scene. It's all very disturbing. And I'm surprised that they like went this hard and showed this much. I, like I kept waiting for the credits um, to start and they just didn't. Some dude asks if he has any last words. He says that he's been there for 11 years and now they're going to murder him. But 
that Allah says the spirit will rise again and be reborn. He says that he's going to return to avenge all the petty tyranny and cruelty he suffered. He says five men will die and that will be his justice. The thing with this episode is like the supernatural element is like reincarnation or like haunting, right? Um, But usually when people have those kind of powers in this show, there's some kind of explanation as to why, like the first one that comes to mind is like the Chaco chicken guy who like studied with tribes or whatever and Mm. like practiced like whatever the fuck. Um, But always that reason just comes down to being a person of color. Like that is considered inherently magical in this show's eyes. And so mm. it's like he, the supernatural element is just that he's black, like that, which is the epitome of fetishization. And it's just interesting to see it play out in this way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I get what you mean. I didn't even think about that. I was and, just like, oh, they're, they keep calling him smart and they keep saying that he was like an expert on all these religions and all he ever did was, was read and then talk to that guy on the phone but it's like so I was just like, oh, he's just really smart, so he's just really powerful. Like he, yeah. I mean, but do you believe in that kind? Of, I mean, not obviously to this extent, but it's like to that kind of power of manifestation, like found I in mean, spirituality. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I believe in most things, truly, because I feel like there's so, the world is so fucking vast, and like we have no, I have no idea what the mind is capable of, probably. Like, yeah. I, like, I'm not using that much brain energy, but somebody could. Like, who am I to say that's not possible? I don't fucking know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I like that point, though. Um, but, like, it, just because that is a really big trope for people of color to be considered magical in, in storytelling. Right. Is, like, that a frequent um, archetype throughout yeah, well, that's a great point. Um, all forms of storytelling. And this show really plays up on it because it's like, even totally. in, I'm, I don't know why I'm thinking specifically of the Chico, 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 <laughs> Chicken Daddy episode. Yeah. Um, I don't remember what it's called. Our Town. Um, Our Town, yeah. But like that one, it's like he was able to get those powers because he studied with indigenous people. Yeah. And so it's like indigenous people are just magical. It's like very um, the white man's burden for me. Yeah. He is killed, and then we're in the opening theme again. You know, it's the same thing with misogyny. It's like a depict this depiction of black trauma in a show about aliens is just I, beats me. I don't know. I really was like very disturbed by this scene, just through and through. And I really feel like that might be one of the worst scenes, like in the show, the whole show. Yeah. Um, and it's just like tossed into an episode in the middle I mean, of season three. Like the worst ones frequently are like remember in Blood, with the woman scared of getting raped in the autumn. Oh yeah, shop? like just fucking extra scene. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Um, because then it also like it's such a it's a there's the trend of diminishing trauma. Oh yeah, I mean that's the creators of this show's favorite thing to do. After the opening, Mulder's back again with his slideshows, his love letters to Scully. Um, I said we love couples that stand in front of projectors together. Yeah, right? It looks so good. I I made a note that there were some really cool shots of both of them in front of the projector while it's on. And I would 
love, 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 love to read a fic. This is so silly, but it's and so specific, but also very much them. So maybe someone would like to do it. But I would love to read a fic where they sneak back into the building or something and they end up turning on the projector. So it's like on and there's like some fun something on it from like the day before or whatever or from that day and they end up having sex in front of it so it's like while it's on oh, it's so like, all beautiful and, and their silhouettes yeah I and mean, exactly that's how what they deserve to, that's what the fucking director should have done i God know so he says Mulder says that napoleon nietzsche manley was convicted in 1984 for double murder in the holdup of a florida liquor store the actual shooter was killed and Manley was driving the getaway car, and he was sentenced to death. So Scully asks what his interest in this case is, and Mulder explains that Nietzsche was a prison philosopher, and that a week before he was executed, rumor spread that he had said he was going to be reincarnated. And Scully is so, so over this one. Like she's, got, she's gotten to the point where she gets to work an hour early, to finish work ahead of time so she can just gaze at Mulder and enjoy the smell of his cologne for a minute without pretending like she's concentrating. Mulder goes on to say that Manley said he was going to take vengeance on five men who mistreated him and then a guard was found dead in his cell that he occupied the 11 years he was in prison. So now we're at the prison. The cause of death as of now, according to the warden, was suffocation. Mulder and Scully are questioning the warden because all the guards, Mulder points out that all the guards were panic devices and Scully points out that obviously the cell was empty. So how did this happen the way that it happened? How did it happen at all? Right. Um, then as they're walking to the crime scene, um, we get a horrifying shot of the male inmates leering at Scully and yeah. here we go. Absolutely not. Well, it's like they yelled before they entered. Somebody yelled woman on the block. And, like, that is so chilling for me to hear watching through a screen, much less actual female, like, officers being in male... Pr- That's horrifying. It feels like medieval. Oh, yeah. Um, and, like, <laughs> I know that this is a reference to Cal- Clarice starling from silence of the lambs like with scully being the only woman walking through a male prison trying to do her job and terrified of being like leered out like that and i know that it's accurate to what would actually happen if she was in a male prison like that um but like i don't know if i want to see it if we aren't going to give her more power power in another realm to offset it you know what i mean yeah. Like, it's realistic, but like I've said a million fucking times on this goddamn podcast, is that, like, I think the point of art and storytelling is to take real-life things and transform them in some way and make, mm-hmm. like, and make them mean something um, and say something about them. But just having us watch harassment and violations isn't fucking doing anything, so it's just pointless trauma. And it may seem dramatic to call this trauma, but, like, when the fucking garb, like, I mean, later, when the garb grabs her, that's trauma. No, I mean, this is absolutely part of trauma, I think. The thing is, too, is that there would have been the perfect opportunity to um, compliment that lack of, or that helplessness that a woman feels when this something like this is happening, obviously. And then, like, on top of this being on a mass scale. Yeah. 
which is that they could have had they could have showed the scene where Scully told Mulder about the guard that grabbed her and what what she, what he told her. Yeah, I was gonna. I put that in there. Sorry, we can wait to discuss that bit because I know we aren't there yet. But yeah, let's wait. But but that would have been the perfect moment. Yeah. Um, because ultimately that gives them the start in a very very lost case. Yep. So Mulder asks the warden if he believes Manley's threats of violence. <laughs> Sorry, that was hard. Um, he says that despite the fact that Manley was smart, he made a mistake and had to pay for it with his life. And because of that mistake, he, along with other inmates, uh, honed his resentment to a f- honed their resentment to a fine point. And now he thinks that. He had a plan before he was executed and is now carrying it out with the help of someone else. So they go to see they go to see the body of the guard. Scully is entering her work boots era. I love when she wears combat boots. And I'm a big fan. They just progressively get more practical and she just moves differently. I mean, like, you know, it's a wave. But right. we are entering into that phase and... She moves differently in them because she's more grounded. Well, and it's like you can actually do your fucking job if you're not balancing in heels. Totally. Like you're, yeah. if you're in shoes appropriate for the work. Crazy yeah. how that affects you. I hate when Scully wears heels. I'm sure. You hate it, huh? It's so annoying how her legs look so elongated and beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's the worst. Yeah. And this is this scene is a perfect example. When they go see the body, the warden says that they're waiting for the local pathologist, and Scully just jumps right in. Know, Her shoulders are back. She's strutting towards doing the work she knows how to do best. She just like jumps on it. And I'm really proud of her. I know. And she does that right after they yell woman on the block. So it feels like she's like, if I'm going to be the only fucking woman on the block. I'm going to be do- <laughs> like, I'm going to do a damn good job. And she does. Yeah. Um, so Scully goes to see the body and she notices that there are these gross maggots eating away at the guard's body. And ever, everyone's a little grossed out, but Mulder looks like he's about to pass out. <laughs> He's so repulsed. I'll catch him. And that's so funny because I'm I'm continuing a read on a book that I stopped a while ago, um, about uh just like the medicine in general about medicine about um the medical profession, mm-hmm. and um it's called for her own good. Um, so it's basically just like looking at decades of medical advice that women were given and women's introduction into and existence in the medical field and all of that and healing and how healing became commodified and, and all of that despite so fascinating. commodified by men despite the fact that women were the original healers. Originally for this scene I had a note saying that Scully would be the like truly the best mother and again i hate chris carter for the rest of my days for taking that away from her and simultaneously making her want it so badly so fucked up because she's so good with like i don't there would be nothing that a child could do that would put her off or gross her out or make her shame her child in any way shape or form but Mulder, like the child would come with like a broken arm 
and it's like all bendy and he would throw up. So, but the point of bringing up the book was the part that I just read was about how when, um, when the, the competition became too great because it used to take like not a lot of money in two years to become a doctor, two years of schooling to become a doctor. Right. When that field became too competitive then um, and male doctors started to lose their credibility because for various reasons, because of sexual assault, because of medicine that wasn't working, because of like over overdosing of different medicines, like all of that. Um, and women started to fill that space and they started to kind of advertise for themselves. The rebuttal from the men was that one of the, the uh, most significant rebuttals from the men was that women couldn't handle all of the things that came with the mm. medical field. So it was like, they're too demure and delicate and sensitive to deal with the stress aside but then in the actual profession to deal with the brutality of the, of the medical field. And the woman who wrote my book, which I don't remember her name, but we'll post it, um, basically said like, as if, you know, women don't deal Cause one of the things obviously was blood. Right. So, and like bodily fluids and the author said, as if women aren't the experts because they go through periods every month and a childbirth literally and all of that um all of those th things um that at the time women had been dealing with i say i say at the time because i don't want to um perpetuate the idea that womanhood is um coincides with getting periods or childbirth or anything. Right. Um, anyway, I just thought that was interesting and I hate Chris Carter. That is really That was the point of that note. So Mulder is questioning another inmate. His name is Speranza. Um, he believed Manley's reincarnation claims and he's insistent that he was the one who committed the murder. Um, he's citing... He cites the fact that they're on death row, so there's no possibility to even attempt something like murder if um, Manley had left some plan for the inmates to carry out for him. Mm. Um, so he said the only explanation is that Manley's back. He said, when he's talking to Mulder, he said that Manley believed that reincarnation was more of a trans transmigration of the soul so that meant that he wasn't necessarily going to come back as himself but that he could come back in the form of anyone or anything mm. so scully stays outside the cell when this is happening and she's listening with one of the guards she starts wandering and <laughs> she's like my child she starts wandering <laughs> around and she goes to see the cell where the guard was murdered she gets harassed on the way so that was fun um the guard follows her and he says that manly was full of shit and that he has a god complex she's like yeah that sounds familiar but wow how well did that work out for scully that she found a man with a god complex and mommy issues to be all hers soulmates um the guard continues he says he doesn't know who killed him, but he knows Manly didn't do it. 
when the guard goes to check on Mulder, Scully takes the opportunity to prove to herself that she can do her job without her womanhood putting her at an unsafe disadvantage. And she goes to explore. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, she was wrong. And some man, um, he looks like a guard. His name is Parmeli, and he grabs her from behind while she's wandering around and covers her mouth. He reassures her he's not going to hurt her. Instead, then why he, grab her like that? He tells her that he knows who's, who Manley's going to kill next and that there's a list that one of the inmates named Roke has with the victim's names on it, and then he vanishes. Um, this made me think about like how this show we've talked about just throws trauma in without the proper weight around it. Like, they're like, we'll just throw in him just, like, grabbing her and pulling her into a dark corner. But, like, it's just, like, nah, he just, later, I think she refers to it as confronting her. Like, yeah. which, he, he didn't, he assaulted her. Um, but it's, like, and then it, that in combination with our conversations that we've had about this show not being feminist, but the character being feminist. Um, and I think, like, this scene really demonstrates how that's possible well because the writing here is not feminist at all it's just throwing in trauma for trauma's sake but the way jillian plays it is really palpable and Mm -hmm. that's why it has an impact yeah you you Um, know what i mean like it's because she actually plays it with the weight that it needs um and then perseveres beyond that but not because but not because that's written in Mm -hmm. yeah the really the really beautiful thing i think about jillian's acting is that um so much of what she does is is recognizable if you have experienced something similar like she really she really um she like connects this is gonna sound really stupid but like she connects beat to beat i don't Mm -hmm. know or like line to line so it's like in between one line and another line there might not be any which I realize I'm just describing acting, but okay, like when the when there's like a transition, right? Mm-hmm. Like so, I would describe this scene as like a transition. Like she goes in for one thing, and then something else entirely happens. It's like you can see the the writing doesn't always encompass the transition of thought, so she fills that in emotionally. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Which I realize is good acting, but it she's but a it's good actor. Like, so yeah, talk about it. Like, I'm, okay, now I realize I'm just describing that her acting is subtle and she has a great subtlety about her acting. So who cares? Talk about it. We can talk about whatever the fuck we want here. Okay, you're right. I know. I just don't want to sound like, I don't want to sound like a white boy describing Tarantino's movie style to you. You're not. Because it's literally, it's like, is she the only actor who does this? No. But are we talking about other actors at this moment? Yes, she is. So it doesn't matter. She is the only actor who does this, actually. I watch every other actor. Actually, there's no other actress in the history of actors who um, use subtle facial expressions. No, no one. That's just Julian Anderson's thing. She actually invented it. (laughs) She did. You heard it here, folks. The point is, is that as a woman, knowing that Julian also has life experience and watching her insert that life experience into a character that I care very much about and being able to have a moment of like when Fleabag looks into the camera you know how you said it feels like we're in on the on the 
like conversation or what's happening. That's how Jillian, that's how Jillian's acting makes me feel. It makes me feel like she's staring directly into the camera and being like, bitch, I'm fucking scared and I'm so shaken. And yeah, that scared the shit out of me. And like, well, she does it in a way that the other actor in scene isn't maybe not actor. The other character isn't in scene, isn't privy to, but we watching are. So it feels like all of a sudden we're on the interior with her rather than on the exterior observing two people talking which which is what makes her the main which makes her a main character she's the character that then you're going to align with so she goes to tell Mulder that she's ready to leave and what i do love about the scene is that he follows her immediately um and he asks her what's wrong and she just responds i'm just ready to get out of here which like this like acting from like the beginning of this scene to this moment is like i this is why in my head i thought i loved this episode because of Mm. this beginning bit is the only thing i remembered and i was like i remember the acting being good like i remember being really intrigued by it but it was just this scene but scully like going to Mulder and saying i'm ready to go now is so reminiscent of the beyond the sea episode like the scene where she tells him we're he fucking brings up her father and she gets freaked out and needs to go except that like this time Mulder knows her well enough to be like oh something happened um and him like scanning her trying to figure out what she needs without being overbearing or condescending is like so despite the fact that she can't even look him in the eye I know is so intriguing to watch like that's the nuance that I live for and like that's what's cool about watching characters for a long time especially these characters which I think we talked about a while ago where it's like we met them at the same time that they met each other and so it feels like extra special as they get to know each other because we're at the exact same stage. There's not anything that we missed. Like we've been here for totally. it all. And that's cool. Yeah, I agree. I really, really like that analysis of that scene. So as they're waiting for the gate to open, a man openly leers at and then laughs at Scully's discomfort and fear. And this scene is like actually really well done yeah. because it portrays the male gaze so fully it portrays like walking out of your home uh as a non-white heterosexual cis man Mm -hmm. so well but like then the other side of that is that it's happening here because it's it's just such a an egregious um, degree because these men are convicted criminals mm-hmm. they're the worst of the worst they're the most dangerous in the country mm-hmm. um men on the street would never act like this what stares directly into camera Jesus fucking Christ. um and then like this is just another example of something having to be the most grotesque display for men to accept it as reality and deem yeah. the woman adequate of empathy it, it, because only monsters treat women like this only yeah killed people they're inhuman no man would act like that in the next scene the inmates are about to paint and then they open up one of the paint cans and they find a severed head um and scully's called to do an autopsy immediately the pathologist that's there shows her larva or something um that was eating the head in the paint can He's explaining that they reproduce rapidly, especially in this warm environment. And he says that they were present in the first victim as well. 
So Mulder talks to Roke about the list okay. while Scully is doing the autopsy. And he says that he wants to transfer to a different facility in exchange for the names on the list. A few things here for me. Go for it. Yeah, go for um, it. I know Scully looks good, right? She just does. Mulder looks so good. Maybe we need a check-in. Like maybe like an intermission. It's okay. It's okay. An intermission for a screen break. Mayhaps. Yeah. Because he clenched his jaw when Rogue walked away and I rewound it 15 times. And when he you're you're in such you're in the safest space I think I just, ever. Why? You got why it. can I don't do know. do any psychologists listen to this podcast? Why is like the clenching of his jaw and like the veins in his hands and like the the muscles in his neck like why is that so like feels like i'm being peeled with a fucking like cucumber peeler like i am simply, <laughs> i'm being graded um, um and then when he holds his jacket like that over his shoulder i'm at risk of getting pregnant so at risk <laughs> <laughs> i've fallen pregnant I don't know about the neck or the veins, but I feel like the jaw is something just completely animalistic. I'm sure it has to do with, like, aggression and, like, you know, a, a, an animal about to pounce okay. or something. No, I think you're right. Well, oh, my God. Like- saying that just cleared my sinuses. <laughs> um, it's, it's like, I don't know. I... Sometimes I wish I was better at science because I have a lot of questions about these things to where it's like, like, why are we attracted to the things that we're attracted to? Like, where does that stem from in our brain? Because it's like, I know there's pheromones, but if you're not in proximity to a person, then where is that coming from? Mm. I can't smell them. That's the question of, can you fall in love with someone if they are not in your presence? One tear streams down Emily's face. No, I'm kidding. It's interesting, though. My only qualm of this scene is, like, this was when I had my realization that I wish that we got to see the scene or the moment that Scully told Mulder what happened to her. That was my next note. I wanted to know if you... Because fuck this world. Like, Chris Carr didn't even consider it. But do you mm-hmm. think that she did? Well, she had to because he knew. Did he? Yeah. He knew about the list. And he knew who to ask about the list, which oh. only Scully knew. I know, but did she just say, oh, a guard told me this? Or did she? Oh, that's interesting. I like, never or did she say that, it. oh, he assaulted me in the corner, and but did, told me this? Well, here's the thing. Based on the fact that she said he confronted me, and she's already using, like, aggressive language. Like, she's already using, like, um, what would be the word? Like... She's already she's already using language that suggests that she that she is very aware that she was assaulted. Like she's very much so aware of like how like how she's definitely not in denial about that. She said that because she was in front of two men. Like majoritively the warden, obviously. So I'm thinking that if she if she said confronted and she didn't just say talk to in front of two men, that she likely would have been more open, I think, with Mulder. That's a good analysis. So meaning she meaning she would have said, you know, that he grabbed me or that he whatever. Yeah. But she absolutely still would have played it down. I mean, regardless of how, I just wish that we could have seen it. Yeah, because it would have been such an opportunity to explore the relationship, whether she was honest or not. Yeah. And like Scully's internal struggle 
um, with not only whether to be honest or not, but in being honest with him and not wanting this belief in her strength to waver because of it. Mm. Um, but Chris Carter literally said the show isn't about relationships while simultaneously pushing the importance of the relationship, hinging on the reverse gender roles and trust. So that wouldn't have fit with the plot as Chris Carter saw it that day, you know? Yep. There was like the Emily clip where he said this show's not about relationships. But it's like, but, but it is. Everything is about relationships. I'm sorry. No matter what the fuck you're writing about, you you're writing about superheroes. It's still about relationships. Yep. Like that's what grounds stories. I find that so frustrating because I think that that is the only grounding aspect of this show, is their relationship. That's literally the only thing that works. Well, it's because like, if you're writing a story, like let's say you're writing a story about magic, right? And like mm-hmm. the only thing that you have is like the idea of magic, but you have no people or relationships to ground or interactions to ground that story. It's not going to go anywhere. It's all going to be like hypothetical. Like mm-hmm. the thing that actually grounds and, and brings stories to life is, is by inserting people in them. And by inserting people, you're therefore going to have interactions and relationships. Totally. I think that Chris Carter's issue is that he wanted to have control on over something that once it became big, it was completely out of his hands and he refused to acknowledge that yeah. or accept that. He, yeah, he was grasping for control, which is um, ironic because then he just takes it completely away from his female character. But So they tell the warden and about what Roke wants and he says no, obviously, because he's horrible. And he thinks Roke is lying, even though it might save three lives. And he essentially is like, I don't care, Bestie. People die every day. (laughs) It's like he became Vanessa Hudgens uh, in that moment. Scully's like, wait, I get that you don't care about the prisoners, but these are guards that are being murdered, buddy. And she looks... She looks beautiful. They They lit her really well consistently this whole episode. That's very true. She looks gorgeous. This whole, whole episode's time. really well shot, just in general. True. The cinematography really, really did just the best job. Yeah. They said that the guard, like, suffocated, right? Or was suffocated. Mm-hmm. Are we sure the guard didn't just get a look at Scully? Because she takes my breath away. All right. So they walk into, hello, who's they? Mulder and Scully walk into the warden's office and the other half of the second victim is sitting in the warden's chair, headless. Nice. So we cut to later that day, Mulder and Scully are doing some investigative field work in, in Manly Cell. They find hundreds of pages of a book um, he wrote all about reincarnation, about citing or all about reincarnation citing different religions and their views on it scully says that being obsessed with it doesn't mean you can do it right and Mulder's like but i'm obsessed with you Ooh, that was a good one that was a good one that would have been so chris carter he should have hired me in the womb to write (laughs) My only note was that she gets so turned on when Mulder talks about religion. Like, did she see, like, intelligently? Like, her smirk. <laughs> like, she's like, oh, my God, he's so smart. I want him to bend me over a pew. True. Yes. 
Um, also, like this scene, okay, first of all, <laughs> I got screenshots of Scully's face. This woman was truly about to risk it all in this in this jail cell. But I also think it's cute because Mulder's also very smitten because of her little joke. She makes two jokes. First, Mulder says, unless he knew something we didn't, or unless we, hello? Unless, I'm having a children weeple moment. Unless he knew something we don't. And Scully says, like what? The secret password? Which is so fucking cute. So this scene is a lot for me. My head is already spinning. I'm so in love with this woman. Dana Catherine Scully needs to learn how to control her facial expressions. Yeah. I thought I was whipped by this woman. He is whipped, okay? He cannot handle her. Like, imagine her looking at you like this. Like she would kiss you if you weren't in a crime scene in a jail cell on death row. I mean, no wonder he can't do his job. Mulder says there are two theories. Either Manly is coming back to kill these five people, or this is part of some elaborate conspiracy among either the guards or inmates to carry out Manly's plan. So Mulder asks Gully who of the people who've made her suffer she would kill if she were in Manly's position, and she responds with, I only get five, question mark. She's so flirty. Then Mulder says, I remembered your birthday this year, didn't I, Scully? Crumbs. Crumbs! He's giving her crumbs. She's looking them up, too. She is, oh my god, she is a vacuum. Anyways, the smile that she gives him made my knees buckle. Full stop. I was standing up watching this episode, and I nearly collapsed. Were you okay? No. Okay. I launched my computer across the room. <laughs> and it's at this point that I realized, like, what is it with Scully and this look, looking up from under her lashes thing? She knows it gets them. She's like, look into my big, beautiful blue eyes. I'm falling in my spell. She's like, I feel like I came off a little too hard last case. So I'm going to try flashing him some looks that he'll never forget. Yeah. Mixed with, like, some subtle flirting that has the potential to escalate very quickly. Yeah, what is with these last two episodes? Like, season three is exponentially more flirty than season two. They're getting hornier. So Mulder finds a letter addressed to his to Manly's partner, and they go talk to her. Um, they show up at her house, and Scully's shoes are still getting flatter. Um, at, and at the same time... I, I had a thought that that could be a conscious effort from Scully to not appear overly feminine in the prison mm. environment. But, like, I also don't believe that the costume department, like... Was thinking like that. Was thinking that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mother and Scully talked to Manley's wife. She says she had the, sa- the same dream many times. <laughs> and that they Scully's put... like me, too. are you bent over the desk too she's like oh my god is he pulling your hair too but she says that she's had the same dream over and over again and the dream is that they put Nietzsche in the chair to die and that he never does um essentially she's a very strong believer in his power and the conviction of his beliefs she says if anyone could come back it'd be Nietzsche 
and while saying all of this, she looks visibly shaken compared to the man in prison talking like in awe of Nietzsche's beliefs. Mm -hmm. And she looks terrified of them and Scully notices, which I, of course she does. I mean, my biggest takeaway from this episode was that like, wow, I wish it was only about Scully and Danielle. We're back at the prison and the warden wants to talk to Roke, the man with the list, apparently. So the warden starts abusing him to get the names, but really he just wants to know if he's on the list. And Roke tells him that he's number five. So, R.I.P. Then when Mulder and Scully leave Nietzsche's wife's house, they agree that they notice her body language, but... Little Lady Scully doesn't understand why she would be afraid of her husband's return because she's never experienced trauma from a man before and thinks every woman would be overfilled with joy at the possibility of her husband returning, even if it's only in spirit. So big macho man Mulder explains to her that a lot probably happened while he was in prison for 11 years and Scully's like, oh, right. So stupid. Um, so Scully gets a call from the warden. He says that Rook was beaten to death in the showers on death row. Gee, I wonder who did it. Mm-hmm. And um, as they're leaving, Manley's wife, who never gets a name up until like the, the last, last scene, scene she's, yeah. in, she's in, um, is watching Mulder and Scully leave. Her boyfriend, Parmesan. <laughs> <laughs> What's his name actually? Par- Parmelli. Parmelli. Parmelli, the man who told Scully about the list and works at the prison. One who assaulted her in the prison, yeah. The one who assaulted her in the prison is um, Manley's wife's boyfriend. And this poor woman is so traumatized. She's, she says she's shaking like a little kitten and like boo for trivializing uh female trauma and fear but also i'm happy that the portrayal of of this black woman isn't stereotypical i.e like the strong black woman trope like she's allowed to feel and express fear Mm -hmm. um i just think it kind of sucks that she's at the mercy of all the men around her like i want to see her be emotional vulnerable like on her own terms you know what i mean oh totally but you're right um it's like a give and take in this in this show and and i also feel like he didn't he didn't sway her in any way no so it was so she very much so stuck with her gut and stuck with her in like her vulner she was very comfortable in her vulnerability yeah it's the same thing with just depicting black trauma in a show about aliens but like particularly traumatizing this black woman who is like the last a part of the last group of people who needs to be hounded with trauma yep but um so she's worried that manly's gonna come back or that someone will find out about her and parm being together and he reassures her that he isn't coming back and that they're fine and there's nothing that she needs to be worried about Mulder and scully go to the prison to see roke's body and scully gets harassed again um the only thing that came out of the scene is i'm ready to fight 300 pound male convicts yep for her Mm -hmm. because chivalry is in my blood what can i say (laughs) so when they get to the prison parm is there Mulder walks off with the warden and while scully's still looking at the body parm warns her and says that that was three 
meaning three victims. Uh-huh. Uh, Mulder's chasing down the warden who just ordered a lockdown of the prison. He's trying to figure out who's going to be next. And he proposes that all the men who've been killed had a violent history with Nietzsche and that they all caused him to suffer physical pain after learning uh, him and Roke nearly killed each other a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mulder basically says that a lockdown will only help if it's a conspiracy among the inmates or guards, and that's clearly not what it is. He says that he wants the name of, Mi- of Nietzsche's executioner, and after some hesitancy, the warden tells him it's Perry Simon. And it was at this point, the warden was going on about how they find the people to be executioners. And like, <sighs> America's sick. Like, America is so grotesque that we put an ad out in, the new- in a newspaper for free murder and people respond. So did he get paid? So yeah, again, I'm sure it's because of the money, but it's like, wow, what what so a world weird. to live in a country where there's such stringent capitalistic forces that people will commit state-regulated murder because their nine to five doesn't pay them a livable wage. Welcome to and America. And they need the extra money. This is America. Mulder and Scully go to Simon's house. It's cute as fuck. But it also, is cute wallpaper literally unlocked so he's not doing a great job at protecting his cute wallpaper no Um, do a better job give it to us so they find scully notices that the mail is piling up from a couple of days so it's not looking great for perry scully walks into the other room and she notices the little maggots on the floor Mulder comes in and they open the attic and go in and they find perry he's dead and he's being munched on by the same maggots and then i was like i wonder if this is the episode where um that jillian was talking about when she said that david um asked someone to get him rice and then he threw it at her (gasps) do you think and she of course thought that they were the actual like live maggots that they were using Mulder talks to um the original inmate that they talked to speranza he tries Mulder tries to get speranza to give him the other names on the list um he tells them that they're gonna blame it on him anyway if he doesn't tell them and they're gonna put him in, in solidarity if he doesn't he goes they well. say you can break a man i know just let scully say all the lines i'm so tired <laughs> seriously but what this scene made me think is that Mulder is the biggest raging bisexual I've ever laid my eyes on. And if you think Scully is the only non-hetero partner in this relationship. Oh, not correct. Maybe take a, take a look at some, you know, personally held stereotypes and prejudices. Around masculinity. As to why, yeah, you're so comfortable making the woman buy, but not the man, despite them having an equal amount of markers for their sexuality shown in the show. Mm-hmm. Just have a little thought. Just some Sunday sauce for you, besties. <laughs> so Spronza says he saw Nietzsche outside his cell and that all he can tell Mulder is that Roke was not on the list. Dun, dun, dun. dun, dun but also, dun. like, Duh, obviously. Um, Scully comes into the interrogation room 
Is Scully being another, is Scully being useful on another part of the investigation? Yes. Is it still fucked that she can't perform every component of her job because she's a woman? Yes. yes. And that's, those are the only thoughts that I have. So she says to Mulder that she went over the phone calls that Nietzsche made. She says that over 30 of them were made to Danny, Shir Danny Shiraz. The same man has come to visit Spraza a bunch since the first murder, so they go to see him. The image of them sitting on the white leather couch should be taught in art history classes. I, I agree. As well as printed in The Joy of Sex. It should be taught in every human sexuality course. No arguments as here. Fine art. Um, basically, the vibes I get from this scene is that her dick is just as big as his, and it shows. And like, that's my girl, you know. Overall thoughts: it's very sexy. It's very um, uh, like I don't know what this genre of furniture is, but it's like eighties. It's like yeah. Post I always want to call mod. everything deco. I know it's not, but art deco in, is it? I don't know if it's art deco. I think art deco is more like sixties, seventies. I don't know, but like eighties is like modern. I think or post mod, something like that. I don't know. Yeah, but it's very. It's yeah bursting at the seams with that design so this dude says he was trying to get speranza a deal um he says that he used to be an attorney and he represented Nietzsche. he's essentially trying to redeem him redeem himself since he was partially to blame for Nietzsche's conviction as his defense attorney mm -hmm. he says he also tried Nietzsche's wife to talk to her but um he was run out by her boyfriend who works in the prison Scully is shocked to hear she has a boyfriend, obviously, mm -hmm. and Mulder's just like, yep, just as I suspected. And then he looks at Scully like he's thinking, oh my god, what if Scully has a secret boyfriend? Oh, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> um, back at the prison, the warden is promising Speranza that he'd get the state to reopen his case if he communicates with Nietzsche to stop the murders. So then we see Parmesan uh, killing this lawyer dude. He comes home to his girlfriend, Manly's wife, and she tells him the stupid FBI is waiting outside watching the house. After they had come to talk to her about the lawyer, her boyfriend was waving a gun at. Thankfully, when Parmesan looks outside at Mulder and Scully, they aren't making out. But why do I know that they could be making out and nothing would get by them still. Like, Scully could be licking up Mulder's neck and she'd still see their watch do something incriminating and be ready to arrest and attack immediately. Which is, I realize, a great image. Okay. Scully is going on retelling the tale of a lonely woman. And... I have some thoughts. So Scully says as they're just sitting there in silence. A woman gets lonely. Sometimes she can't wait around for a man to be reincarnated. <laughs> Did you just send me something? Yeah. So when she that's says- That's the picture I have. That's Mulder's face directly after, so we'll post a picture, but like this shot, like directly after Scully says, a woman gets lonely. He, his eyes go boing. His eyes shoot out of his head. I think I think it's interesting because they always have Scully tuning in on women's loneliness. 
like she did it in Aubrey too and like and well, I and, and I know there's just, other examples but I can't think of it but also not even like specifically <clears throat> on women's loneliness but also just like being com- so synced up and intuitively aware of how every other woman feels yeah exactly and I think it reveals a few things like it reveals the writer's prejudice on like women having this secret magical connection right mm-hmm. it reveals that they think that she must be lonely if she's this successful in her career mm-hmm. she has to also be lonely um and then it's also that it just projects this like continued um it just projects this continued notion that women are, so- are somehow incomplete without a partner and so are void in some way and so if they're not with somebody they must be lonely like it- it'll happen eventually um and so i know all those things but in our world I wanted to, what do you think Scully's feelings are around loneliness? Like, do you think she gets lonely? Because she talks about it on multiple occasions. And I feel like, like, I know her, Jillian's characters, like Stella Gibson, like, she's so fucking content alone. Um, but I wonder if Scully's content alone. Like, has she reconciled that within herself yet? That's a very good question. And in my brain, I feel like this Scully has not. I feel I like different versions of Scully at different age stages in her life. I don't know that she ever, I don't know that she ever really finally gets there, at least mm-hmm. not in the original run, certainly not in the original run. No. But I think that there are definitely moments for her. Like, yeah. I think that there are moments where she's like teetering on the edge of being very content and very fulfilled in in the the choices that she's made Mm -hmm. but i think which is why i love jillian's episode so much because it's like it focuses entirely on choice and entirely if there is one right decision or not so while she's very content at some points with the choices that she's made it's also only human of her to have moments where um that falters Mm -hmm. And just as much as there are moments where she's fully content, you know? Yeah, I agree. But I don't think there's ever gets to the state of being content being alone. Because her and Mulder are very, are very codependent. Oh, absolutely. So that would make sense that that wouldn't necessarily come. And I think like the process of coming to terms with that is is nonlinear. So I think that's that's a very fair analysis. It's also funny because you flash forward to a reincarnated molder like five years later yes that's very true um that's so true oh my god really right foreshadowing because do you think that they ever talked about that i don't know i i would like to think so i always like to think that the little things and seemingly insignificant cases like come up in conversation later in life because it just makes things make sense molder and scully go tell the warden what happened um they tell him that parmesan is (laughs) one mrs manley's boyfriend and two that he cornered scully and made an overture for rogue this whole scene just feels like very against molder and or at least molders typically very anti-authority agenda yeah i agree 
And I was so shocked that he hasn't assumed at this point, like we said in the beginning, that the warden killed Rogue. That seems very, very out of character. And I was going to say, maybe even for both of them at this point. Yeah, I think so. I think so, 100%. Um, anyway, so he tells... Warden tells Mulder and Scully that Shiraz was found murdered. Scully says he could be the fifth victim. Obviously, the warden knows that that's not true um, because he is. And he says that someone should arrest Parm on the suspicion that he is Nietzsche's assassin. Yes. So we cut to actual Nietzsche. Oh, wait, I have a, I, sorry, I have a note yeah. from that scene that I forgot. Mm-hmm. Um, it, this is a really, really small moment. I just like when Mulder lets Scully handle things. So like the moment when she says the lawyer's name and turns to Mulder for reassurance and he's just like, yeah, you got it, babe. Keep going. Like, and then I also like, like, cause that's just sweet and it's not in a condescending way for once in in a very like supportive, like non diminishing of her power way. Um, but then also I like that those looks for reassurance gradually go away for her. Like, in first season, like, we talked a lot about how she's just observing everything. Like, that's kind of all she's doing. Um, And then I feel like that, like, grounding coincides with Jillian gaining more and more agency in her real life and getting more grounded for herself. And I know we've talked about this a thousand times, like, the parallel of Scully gaining her strength and Jillian gaining her strength. But it never ceases to amaze me and make me emotional in moments like that one. That's so, so true. And I think I never, I hope that we never stop talking about it because it's so incredible now that we're like hyper analyzing every episode to just see how much more grounded she gets by the season, I would say, like pretty noticeably. Seriously. And it's really cool. And to see how that fluctuates and like see how normal that is because I know that fluctuates in my own life mine as well um so we cut to actual Nietzsche and he's at his wife's home again this whole scene light black face yes better literally that was my only note I don't understand why this was even allowed you cannot see them it's so and then it got me and then it was like so that means that black actors have to work twice as hard because everything needs to be over exaggerated because they're literally not being lit properly so in order to like yeah to evoke the same emotion they, they have, have to work to, like, twice as hard they have to over exaggerate it yeah oh my god that's such a good point um which is so fucked up Parm is at the front window he's watching as the cops pull up outside of his house Danielle, who we just get her name, tells him yeah. that Nietzsche is in the house. And of course, Parm doesn't believe her, so she pulls a gun on him, saying that now she knows that he's Nietzsche. And uh Danielle's a beautiful name. We first we get it here. It in is. her last scene. The shots are going back and forth between her about to kill him and Mulder and Scully and the police about to enter the house. Um, Scully is a genius and looks through the window and she sees that Danielle has a gun pointed at Parm. I love that she notices that. And before they can break down the door and stop her, Danielle shoots him and she says that she swears it was Nietzsche and she's 
poor woman is so traumatized it's so heartbreaking like she's the ultimate victim totally but it sucks because it's played up that warden is that the warden is like yeah, since he's the last final like surprise death when really the biggest victim is the woman who didn't even die absolutely i couldn't have said it better myself so we're back at the prison and the warden is about to kill another inmate he starts beating speranza after he tells him there's only one man left to die which is him so we cut to Mulder and scully they're driving down the road Mulder pulls off and Scully's tingling all over because she's like, why are we stopping? She's like, oh, um, I, hold on. I wasn't ready. She was like, I was not expecting this at all. She's like, oh, shit. What am I wearing right now? Um, she has like a mental scan. So it turns out Mulder just needed a little walk to flesh out some of his thoughts among the grassy fields. Just imagine how fun it would be if that went a different way. Unfortunately for all of us, Scully included, that doesn't happen, whatever you were imagining. And instead, Mulder starts going on about how it doesn't make sense laying it all on Parmelli. And I noticed that he gets out of the car and he just starts talking without looking back to see if Scully's following. And one day she's just not going to follow you, my guy. And you're going to be talking to some gravel. <laughs> just kidding. That will never happen because the less attention he gives her, the more she wants him. Sad, but true. So they go back and forth. Basically, they don't see the motives, really. And Scully thinks it was just a matter of things being adjusted because they didn't go as planned. But Moeller doesn't think that Parmelli killed anybody. He thinks Nietzsche Manley killed everyone based on the fact that both Danielle and Speranza said that they saw him in front of them. Scully, in her big buttons and her beautiful <laughs> strawberry blonde hair, are like, babe, it's over. She walks back to the car. Mulder clenches his jaw a bunch and exposes his neck to the open air. Can we? Like, I feel like it's a personal yes. attack at this point. Yeah, please. David must have, like, a sore neck or something because he's constantly... Just flexing it. Stretching, stretching it out. It. Jesus Christ. Also, his dick is out. Sorry. Fully. But it is. It's swinging. And I wish I was swinging on it. It's <laughs> like a little swing set. Just like a little miniature me. Castaway. Oh, my cheeks hurt. Okay. Mulder and Scully are at the side of the road. They look like an angry couple arguing. Like in the middle of their road trip. Literally. But as they're getting back into their car, the warden passes them <laughs> in his car. Where he's going, no one knows. And then he looks in the, his rearview mirror and he's like, I knew they were fucking. <laughs> he does make that facial expression. It's truly, he's like, I knew there was something happening with those two. Anyways. We're in the warden's car. Then all of a sudden, Nietzsche Manley is in the back seat. He chokes him, does something... And he runs into a tree and the warden dies. And the episode ends. I wasn't shocked that the police brutality was never addressed or even attempted to be addressed. Yeah. A couple of critiques about this show, or a couple of critiques of this show, have addressed how one of the biggest recurring flaws in the storytelling 
this show has is all of the action happening at once. Yeah. And then just ending abruptly, like they reach the page limit on the script. Yeah. This is a perfect example of that. And because this won't obviously be continued in the next episode, you're left with so many loose ends. Yep. What happened to Speranza? What will happen to Danielle? Like, a black woman traumatized and left floating through time. She's probably going to go to prison. For murder. Yeah. And it's like, none of that is even talked about because they're just like, okay. And it's like, I think we talked about this in maybe the second episode or something to where it's like, they just showed up and then left people more traumatized. Yeah. Nothing yes. was resolved at all. Do Mulder and Scully just go home? Like, do they find out that the warden died? Too many things go unanswered that it makes you wonder why you watched the episode. That's such a good point. It truly makes you wonder why they told the story to begin with. Exactly. And that kind of translates to the show at large, right? Like, I don't hear people praising the show for the genius story arc. No, Um, no, no one fucking knows what happened. Yeah, like I do with other shows. Like, absolutely, there are other shows where the story arc and how much care was paid to the, st- to the story. Yeah. Not just each story that happens. Yeah. Were you silent or were you silenced? <laughs> Anyways. But you know what I mean? Yeah. People stuck around and continue to watch the show because some moments were entertaining and interesting. Um or they loved this relationship between Mulder and Scully. Yeah, the dynamic. But the story leaves so much to be desired. Yep. Like, the only reason I watched this episode was for Scully's smile when Mulder flirted with her. Yeah. And I'm not, and I'm not ashamed to say it. And you shouldn't be. And that's the episode. That's the episode. Uh, do you want to do a short Jillian's Corner? Yes, please. Blessing? Yes. Okay. <gasps> Nice. I don't have much other than I was watching, I think it was earlier this morning, the interview where Jillian is, was it Conan? Yeah. Where Jillian is on um, Conan O'Brien and it's like 1995, something like that. It's very, very early X-Files. And it's just, I was just marveling at the fact that she's where she is now. That, like, with, like, her career stuff and just, like, who she is as a person. It's so cool. Like, women growing older is so magical. Oh, my God. What a great phrase. Thank you. What a great thing to say. Right, though, it's true. It's, look who you're talking to. It's, I fully yes it's so true i think the thing that's so amazing about that interview to me is that now she's so in control of those types of situations whereas i think then it was very much so like i have the choice not to answer a question if i don't want to or like i don't have to give an honest answer to this if i don't want to yep was like not there was no grasp of that like fucking understandably but it's just so incredible to see her interviewed now 
and see just how she she kind of commands the interview mm-hmm. it's the transition is so cool and i know and that's about such this a good before, point but it's like just to see how many versions of herself she's gone through is just very comforting and reassuring yeah. and seeing that very like palpable not palpable like tangible comparison of mm-hmm. exercising one's control of power in social situations is really rad absolutely and i think that also comes just from like a control in in real life yep professionally and personally and and everything so that's that's amazing yeah that's all i have to say i think that's beautiful i think the message here is isn't it wonderful how women age? Yeah. So that's the episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening. We love you. Um, and we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time on The Sex Files. The Sex Files. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.